Hi, this is Pastor Ryan Spooner. I'm so glad that you're listening to our sermon podcast. I hope it's a blessing. If you live in the area, or even if you don't, we would love to have you join us on a Sunday morning. We meet at 10.30 a.m. at the Millworks in Willington, Connecticut, 156 River Road. Also, if you'd ever like to help support our church financially, we would be extremely grateful. You can donate through our website, stpaulschurchct.org. Thanks. All right. Good morning. Happy New Year. I can still say that because uh, the snow day kept us from getting together last week. It's, uh, it's actually <coughs> it was um, fortuitous that we had a snow day the day that we did because I think that if we had gotten together, I would have coughed more than spoken uh, throughout the sermon. Anybody else get the upper respiratory thing? Yeah, yeah. My COVID test was negative, so, but boy, it, uh, it lingers, so uh, hopefully I won't be coughing too much this morning. So even though the Christmas season has passed, we are continuing in our When the Word Became Flesh series for this one final Sunday. Uh, next week, we're going to be starting a four-week series on the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus's, uh, the beginning of Jesus' adult life in the Gospel of Matthew. So we're kind of just going to keep going in Matthew. Um, but this will be the last in our When the Word Became Flesh series. Last time we got together, we talked about the significance of the visit of the Magi uh, when they came to pay honor to the child Jesus. And this morning, we're considering the significance of what happened right after the visit of the Magi, which is what's known as the escape to Egypt. You might remember that when King Herod found out that a newborn king had arrived, that he said to the Magi, when you guys uh, find out where he is, you come back and tell me, so that I too may go and worship him. Uh, But of course, that was... uh, Not a genuine request. King Herod had no interest in worshiping Jesus. King Herod felt threatened by the arrival of a newborn king. King Herod, of all people, being a leader of the Jews, should have been excited that the one that the prophets had foretold had finally arrived, but instead he was jealous. And so uh, God warned Joseph in a dream uh, to take Mary and Jesus, and to flee to Egypt to find safety. So, let's read the story if you want to follow along in your own Bible. We're in Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Matthew 2, verse 12. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you for this morning. Uh, We thank you for the chance to gather together uh, around your word and around your table And, Lord, we just want to be open to receive whatever it is that you want to teach us this morning. Help us to have ears to hear and hearts that are willing to receive. And all God's people said, Amen. All right. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, the Magi returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. 
So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. So, Jesus' life was almost snuffed out before it even had a chance to get started because of King Herod. Oh, King Herod. People like King Herod show up in every generation. They are leaders who are deeply insecure and narcissistic, uh, so much so that they are willing to sacrifice the common good of their own people and even the lives of people on the altar of their vanity. There are always leaders in every generation who are like this. If you've ever done a deep dive on, say, North Korea, um, I would encourage you to, look, to, to study that at some point because you find there this incredible dynamic where it's like, there's a whole population that is existing to prop up the ego of one person. It's a terrible thing. It seems that there are always some leaders that are possessed by what we might call the spirit of Herod. Now, in the hopes of killing Jesus, Herod ordered the death of any child in Bethlehem that was under two years old. So those would be the children who were around the age that Jesus well, could have been. And uh, this is the event that is known as the Massacre of the Innocents. But before that order was given, God spoke to Joseph in a dream, said, take your family to Egypt, and he did. And so Jesus' life was spared <coughs> by spending part of his early childhood as a refugee. As Christians, we should never have to wonder whose side God is on when people flee from tyrannical leaders. I doubt many of us here think there's a question about that, but just in case there's any doubt, we should know whose side God is on. Because when the Word became flesh, He did not become a tyrannical leader, but He did for a time become a refugee. So we can see who God sides with. There's a vision in the book of Revelation that should remind us of this story. Book of the Revelation, last book in the Bible, highly symbolic, uh, filled with these visions uh, that a man named John had. 
And in one of John's visions, he sees a pregnant woman that he describes as being clothed with the sun, and she is giving birth. And he says, the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. We know who that is, right? That's Jesus. Now, that vision there shows us that the dragon was behind King Herod's actions. John defines this dragon as that ancient serpent, the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. And what I want us to see here, both from the story of the flight to Egypt and through this vision, is that the devil wants to kill whatever God is giving life to, whatever God is birthing. Satan's behavior in these stories reminds me of the devil's action in Jesus' parable of the four soils. You might be familiar with this. Uh, Jesus tells a, a parable where he describes when the word of God is shared, he likens it to a farmer sowing seed. And he, he uses uh, that analogy to give four possible ways that people respond when they hear the word of God. And one of them, he says, it's like the farmer just throws the seed and it doesn't even land on the soil. It just lands on a path. And he says, then birds come and they pick up the seed and eat it and snatch it away before it even has a chance to grow. And he says that that is a, a picture of what happens sometimes when the word of God is shared. Those birds are like the devil that comes and just snatches uh, the seed away. He says, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. And I, I just feel led to say this morning, I, th I think we need to recognize that this is how the devil tends to operate. He tries to snatch away whatever God is planting. He tries to kill whatever God is birthing. And because of that, I feel led to say, Expect resistance. Expect resistance within you, internally, and externally. So, say that you're somebody that's curious about Jesus. You're curious about giving your life to him. You felt something in you calling you towards that. Expect resistance. Expect that you'll be super interested, and then a couple days later, you'll be like, why was I even thinking about that? If you are somebody that has been following Jesus for a while, expect resistance to becoming more mature and to growing in understanding and to actually living out the Sermon on the Mount. Expect resistance. If you're in any kind of ministry at all, trying to introduce people to Christ, or to help people to grow in Christ. Expect resistance. Expect that things will not always go as planned, that maybe often they will not go as planned, because the devil loves 
to snatch away the seeds that are being planted and loves to abort what God is trying to bring to life. Now, the good news is that if we resist the devil, he flees. But we have to choose to resist. And we cannot do it in our own power. But there's, there's a choice that we have to make to resist. One of the ways that I think that we can encounter resistance in our walk with God is when it comes to understanding Scripture, to interpreting the Bible. Because, let's be honest, interpreting Scripture can be hard, right? Uh, sometimes we have this assumption that, well, if the Bible is inspired by God, it should be easy to understand. And I think that that's a false assumption. You know, it, it could be argued that, you know, if the Bible is inspired by God, we should expect that it would challenge our human understanding, that it would be deep and complex and something that we have to wrestle through, right? So we've we got to be careful that we don't kind of go along with that assumption. Sometimes we don't even realize we have it, that we're like, well, yeah, if the Bible's from God, then it should just be something that we can just pick up and just totally get right from the start. Not necessarily, right? <clears throat> and I bring this up because I think that this passage is one that has aspects of it that are hard to understand. Um, I hesitated about whether I really want to talk about this stuff because this is going to be a little bit like being in a seminary classroom this morning. And sometimes, uh, you know, people might feel like, well, let's not really get into those details. Let's just, you know, stick to the surface stuff. I actually want to go down into the details because I think it's important that we are biblically literate. Um, and that means wrestling with some stuff that's a little bit difficult. But I think you guys are up for it. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Now, when I say that this passage is hard to understand, I don't mean that the story is hard to understand. Right? The story is easy. Herod wants to kill Jesus. Joseph is warned in a dream to go to Egypt. They go to Egypt. They stay there for a little while. Then they leave, and they eventually settle in Nazareth. That's, a, that's not complicated. right? But what's harder to understand is this concept of fulfillment. Matthew says three times in this passage that what is happening is somehow fulfilling Scripture. Now, my assumption, based on my experience, is that when people hear that Scripture is being fulfilled, this is what they imagine. They imagine that if you opened up the Old Testament Scriptures, you went to the right place in the Bible, and you read what it said, that it would say, one day a Messiah will come, and then he will do blank. Fill in the blank, right? And that the New Testament is then writing that Jesus did blank, right? And that if you just went back into the Old Testament, you could find that. And this is, it's basically the idea that when, when Scripture talks about fulfillment, there is a prediction in the Old Testament, and then the prediction ends up coming true. Now, there are absolutely examples in the Scriptures of fulfillment in that way. There is a prediction, and then it comes true. But that is not always what fulfillment means. So, let's look at an example here. Looking at the passage again. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. 
And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Okay, so what people tend to assume when they hear that, at least most of us today, is okay, so a prophet once said the Messiah would have to go into Egypt and then one day God would call him out. But if you look up the passage that Matthew is referencing, it's Hosea 11.1, this is what it says. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called my son. Uh-oh. That's not a prediction. Right? That's just remembering Israel's history. Early in Israel's history, the people were enslaved in Egypt, right? But God called Israel out of slavery, and that's the story of the Exodus, happens early in the Bible, second book in the Bible. So why is Matthew using this as an example of Jesus fulfilling Scripture? You know, the skeptical person might say, well, Matthew's just being dishonest. He's just taking verses out of context from the Old Testament, hoping that people don't actually check and realize. Well, Matthew is not being dishonest, but he has a different understanding of fulfillment than many of us have today. For Matthew, Jesus is fulfilling Scripture, because he is reliving the story of Israel. I want us to grasp this idea. Jesus is fulfilling scripture because he is reliving the story of Israel. The technical word for this is recapitulation. Recapitulation. To recapitulate something is to summarize or restate its main points. Jesus is recapitulating the story of Israel. Now, if you don't know the story of Israel at all, you might miss that, okay? But just in case any of you are not aware, uh, just four generations into Israel's history, the Israelites needed to take refuge in Egypt. There was a famine, that's where the food was, so they went to Egypt. And then, as more generations passed, they grew in number, they became enslaved in Egypt, and then, eventually, God called his son Israel out of Egypt, brought them out of slavery, and that is the event that we remember as the Exodus. And so what's happening here is Matthew is saying, don't you see? Just like our ancestors, Jesus took refuge in Egypt early in his life. And just like our ancestors, God called Jesus out of Egypt early in his life. So, are we understanding that idea? Okay. Jesus is reliving the history of Israel. So what about that second example of fulfillment? Well, this one is similar. So we'll look at that again. Uh, Herod gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Uh, then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. So those were words that the prophet Jeremiah said. Jeremiah was a prophet to Israel 
uh, around the time that Israel went into exile. Uh, you might remember that there was this time in Israel's history where they were attacked by the Assyrian Empire, Jerusalem was destroyed, and many of the Israelites were taken from their homeland and brought uh, to, to exile, to, to another country. And so Jeremiah is describing what it was like as the crowds were about to be taken away. And he's saying that, he says, Rachel is weeping for her children because they are no more. In other words, the land is weeping. Okay, Rachel is a shorthand for the land because Rachel wasn't even alive at that time. Rachel was uh, the, the uh, wife of Isaac, who was the second generation of Israel. She was buried around Bethlehem. Okay, I know this is a little confusing, but... Um, <clears throat> so, what's happening is, is the prophet is saying that, that the land of Bethlehem is mourning because the people are being taken away, taken away into exile. And so, in its original context, Jeremiah was describing the grief of being taken away by a violent government. And Matthew is saying, once again, violent government is causing terrible grief, and Bethlehem is weeping. And so again, part of what Matthew is showing us here is that the life of Jesus is recapitulating, reliving Israel's life, Israel's story. And the life of Jesus is somehow bringing this whole story together. That's the idea. One analogy that I like to use for this that, that might be helpful is to think of a symphony, a musical symphony. And you know how in a symphony there are certain musical motifs that recur, right? And, and the music will, will build and, and those melodies will return at different points, but maybe they'll be altered a little bit and they'll, they'll change and develop, right? Um, this is also how a, a good movie score will work. And in the last part of the symphony, uh, it brings it all together, or at least that's the hope, right, of a good piece of music, is that it will kind of return, bring all these musical themes that have been playing through the whole thing and then bring them together in a satisfying conclusion. And so if you think of the story of Israel as a musical symphony, what's happening here is Matthew is saying, do you hear that melody returning? There's that flute part again. There's a variation on Darth Vader's theme. All these melodies that are part of Israel's symphony are coming together in Jesus' life because Jesus is somehow bringing this all together. He is fulfilling the story. So, fulfillment is not just about predictions coming true. That's part of it. Um, but it's about more, more than that. If I said, you know, I've been reading this book, I've been reading a series of books, and I really hope that the author is going to be able to fulfill the story. What I would mean by that is I really hope that the author is going to be able to end this story in a way that brings together everything that's gone before. Right? in a way that doesn't leave any of the, the plot threads just hanging, in a way that, that ties it all up. And I want, I want the author to end it in a way that makes sense, that feels right. But 
I also don't want to see the ending coming from a million miles away, right? I want to be a little surprised, too. And that is what Jesus does. Jesus fulfills the story of Israel. He accounts for everything that's gone before. He brings all these threads together. And yet, he does it in a way that's surprising, in, the, in a way that nobody could have seen coming. Jesus fulfills the story. If we keep reading beyond this passage today, you can see even more clearly that Jesus is reliving the story of Israel. Um, so let me give an example, okay? Israel came out of Egypt. Jesus came out of Egypt. And what happened when Israel was coming out of Egypt? Well, Israel passed through the waters of the Red Sea. Well, I don't think it's any accident that the, the next thing that Matthew records Jesus doing after coming out of Egypt is his baptism, when he passes through the waters of baptism. And then what did Israel do after they went through the waters of the Red Sea? Well, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. What's the next thing that Matthew records Jesus doing after his baptism? He goes into the wilderness where he is tempted for 40 days by the devil. Right? This is not an accident. The point is Jesus is fulfilling the story. He's recapitulating it, reliving it. And not only is he reliving it, but he is succeeding where Israel failed. Right? When the Israelites were in the wilderness, they grumbled, they complained, they lost faith. But when Jesus faced the wilderness, he resisted the devil. Right? Jesus is succeeding where Israel failed. He's succeeding where all of us fail. Not only is he recapitulating Israel's story, but in a sense he is recapitulating all of our stories. Right? Because he took on flesh in the womb of a mother, passed through birth, childhood, adolescence, adulthood, even death. Because Jesus is recapitulating and therefore redeeming our stories. There's one other reference to Jesus fulfilling in this passage. I said there were three. Matthew says that when Joseph and Mary settle in the town of Nazareth, that this fulfills what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. Now, that seems simple enough, right? Prediction, Jesus will be called the Nazarene. He lived in Nazareth. Except there's a little problem. As far as everyone knows, there's no biblical passage where it says Jesus will be a Nazarene. And if you have your Bible, you may have noticed there's a little footnote for the first two fulfillments that shows you where in your Bible these passages come from. But this third one, there's no footnote. Oh no! Okay, remember, expect resistance. <laughs> there's a temptation in a moment like this to just go, nah, I give up. But push through that, okay? Because there, I think there is a good answer for this one. 
There might not have been a specific prophecy predicting that the Messiah would come from Nazareth. Now, there might have been, even though it's not recorded in our Bibles. That's one possible answer. But another possible answer is that when Matthew says he will be called a Nazarene, and that that's what the prophet said, he's not saying the prophet said he will be from the town of Nazareth, but something a little bit different. Nazareth was thought of as kind of a dumpy place. I know that's not very nice, but it's the truth. And if you want proof of it, there is a story in the Gospel of John where two of the disciples, or people who are about to be the disciples of Jesus, are talking to each other. One of them, Philip, he comes to Nathaniel and he says, We found the Messiah. It's Jesus of Nazareth, the one that the prophets have spoken of. And do you remember what Nathaniel says? He says, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Because that's the way people thought of Nazareth. They thought of it as an unremarkable, dumpy kind of place. So the prophets may not have said Jesus will be, or the Messiah will be a Nazarene, but they did say this. Listen to what Isaiah said in anticipation of the Messiah. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. So the explanation that makes the most sense to me is that what Matthew is saying is the prophets told us that he would be an unremarkable kind of person, at least to our human eyes, so that there would be nothing particularly remarkable about his background or his upbringing or anything like that that would be apparent to us. He'll be a Nazarene. He'll be from the dumpy area. That makes sense to me. So, the big idea that I want you to take from this morning, Jesus fulfills the scriptures. He fulfills them. Now, sometimes he does that by doing what the prophets predicted. Sometimes he does that by reliving, recapitulating the history of Israel. And sometimes he does that by bringing the story that the scriptures have been telling to the end which they have been pointing and when the biblical authors use that word fulfill, they have all of these kinds of things in mind. And I think that the more that we can see and appreciate this, the more beautiful Christ and the scriptures will be to us. The Apostle Paul wrote this about Jesus. He said, He is before all things, and in him... All things hold together. In him, all things hold together. If we want the Bible to hold together, as a whole, we need to recognize Jesus as being the center of it. And if we don't do that, it doesn't hold together. It doesn't tell a coherent story. But when we let Jesus be the center of the story, 
It does. And, this is the thought I want to close with, the same is true for our lives. If we want our lives to hold together, we need to let Jesus be the center of them. He is the one that can guide us through the difficulties of life. He is the one who can bring meaning to the stories of our lives. He is the one who can fulfill our life stories as well. So let him be at the center. Amen? Lord, uh, we pray that as we ex- encounter resistance uh, to growing in our walk with you, uh, that you would help us to push through, that you would help us to resist the devil, and we thank you for that promise in Scripture that as we resist the devil, he flees. Uh, Lord, we want uh, the seeds that you are sowing in our hearts to take root and to grow. Uh, we want the, the new spiritual life that you are trying to birth in us um, to flourish. And uh, so, Lord, we just surrender to your will, recognizing that you are far greater and far more powerful uh, than any evil force that would try to thwart you. And uh, so, Lord, we give you thanks. Deepen our understanding. Uh, help us to, to know you. Help us to appreciate the richness and complexity of the scriptures. Uh, we, we, we give you thanks, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.